Thank you, Josh. Hi, everyone. Let's pray. Loving Father, please uh, speak to us through your word and help us to draw near to you as you draw near to us. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us and uh, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, one of the reasons uh, we seem to love hearing about the royal family uh, and watching their news on the TV and reading about it in magazines uh, and websites um, is to wonder what it's like to be them. What would it be like to be one of those people, like a William or a Harry or... Well, Harry's not one anyway. Um, <laughs> because they kind of live on a different level to us, don't they? They just inhabit a different world. And sometimes they interact with common people like us, like us and it's always interesting to see how, what happens when they do. It's, it's only very rarely that you see a glimpse of uh, one of these people not enjoying being amongst the masses. Um, uh, the week before his wedding to Camilla, Prince Charles was being photographed on a ski trip with his two sons, and uh, he didn't realise there were microphones nearby, and uh, he muttered to his sons, I hate doing this, bloody people, I can't bear that man anyway, he's so awful, he really is, I hate these people, that's what he said to them. Um, just a little hint that mixing with the masses and being accessible is not always very fun for these uh, royal people. Charles's father was um, even less subtle when, when he wasn't keen to be out in the world, Prince Philip. Um, in 1969, he was opening something, cutting a ribbon in Canada, and he said, I declare this thing to be open, whatever it is. And that was basically his attitude. He didn't really want to be there and he didn't hide it. But I think overall, they must be very patient people uh, to come amongst people like us, the common people, um, and I imagine that posing for all those photos and cutting all those ribbons and having all these conversations with people you're never going to meet again must be very trying. And you'd often find yourself thinking, when can I leave? Well, um, if there's an intriguing gap between the royal family and the rest of us, what about the gap between God and people? Um, we might wonder, does God want to be in our company? Or would he really rather be somewhere else? Uh, you and I might ask, does God want my company? Um, after all, I'm just a mere creature, I'm very limited, and I know that I think bad thoughts, and I say stupid things sometimes, and I do wrong things, and I fail to do right things, I'm not at all holy. So why would God want my company? Why would he want your company? It's not hard to imagine a God who just couldn't be bothered giving humans a second thought, I think. But the incredible thing is that the true God, that is the God of the Bible, has always planned to live amongst humans. Now, it's not that uh, God is absent from other places, but he's always chosen to manifest his presence specially in particular places, to be specially close to particular people whom he's chosen. You could say that this is the theme of the whole Bible, God establishing his, our people so that he can dwell with them for their blessing and for his glory. But in Ezekiel, um, we've seen, thing, seen things go the other way. We've been eight weeks in Ezekiel. This is our last Sunday in, in this book. And in this book, we have seen God withdrawing from his people, leaving the temple, leaving Israel to their fate because of their sin. And it's really a catastrophic reversal of God's purposes. When his purposes are to draw near to a people, here he is going the other way. 
But in chapter 43, uh, God gives Ezekiel a, vis- a vision of his return. And uh, the verses that Josh just read for us, verses 1 to 12, is the centre of the final nine chapters of this book. We're not doing anything else in the last nine chapters, just looking at this passage, so it really is a sort of a bird's eye view. Uh, but these last chapters are all about God promising to re-establish his presence amongst his people. So after everything, God is still prepared and he's still determined to live with a people and he promises to return and that determination still applies today we can be amongst those with whom God himself dwells which is an incredible thought and I hope that uh, you'll see how incredible it is tonight but the question is how can we make that work being in the company of God how can that possibly how can we make that work uh, if we're just sinful human beings Well, um, in Ezekiel's vision, God shows us what it involves to keep company with God, and he tells us what it requires to keep company with God. So firstly, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 43, which you might like to open up, we have what God's company involves. Um, Now, when Christians say God is with us, God is with me, um, do we only mean that God's on our side when we say God is with us? In fact, It's saying much more than just that God is on our side. When the Bible says that God is with his people, it means that he is literally with us as a spiritual reality. In Ezekiel's vision of God's return here, he experiences God drawing near to his people. So I'll just read this paragraph again. It says, When when the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east, his voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I'd seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I'd seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I sometimes listen to um, history podcasts when I'm doing other things um, and I was listening to one this week about the Manhattan Project which is where they were developing the nuclear bomb during World War II. They wanted to bring the war to an end and they were trying to make this super weapon. And uh, they quoted people who were there for the first test of the first atomic bomb in the desert in New Mexico. Uh, it was at 5.30 in the morning just before the sun rose. Uh, the scientists were watching from a distance of 20 miles away from where the bomb was. Um, they didn't, they'd never done this before. They didn't know exactly what would happen when they, when they pressed the button. Um, and they had prepared three sets of documents. Uh, one was um, if it worked okay. Another was if it did massive damage. And the third set of documents was the obituary for everybody there in case they just all got cooked by this thing. Uh, at the moment the bomb was set off, there was a flash and it says, they said the light was brighter than a thousand suns. Uh, it was a light that bore right through you. And the heat was like someone suddenly opened a huge oven right in front of you. Now that was 20 miles away from where it went off. It then took five minutes for the sound to reach them and the shockwave to reach them. And it was like the, a clap of thunder that just kept going. They could see the mushroom cloud rising and then the, the wave hit them. Uh, it was awesome in the proper sense of the word. Well, here in Ezekiel, uh, he sees the glory of God arriving, and not unlike an atomic bomb, perhaps, the roaring voice, like standing next to a waterfall. 
and the land is radiant with God's glory. Everything's sort of lit up, properly awesome, as you would expect when the creator of the whole universe draws near uh, on this earth. Ezekiel's response, as in chapter 1, was to fall on his face. Uh, It was not to yawn and say, oh yeah, this is what I saw 20 years ago, same thing. Uh, No, the glory of the Lord doesn't get old. When God appears, it doesn't, doesn't become familiar. It's not like you get used to it. It can't be taken casually. If you sensed it clearly, you would fall flat on your face every time this happened. But the significance of this is that it was really good news that God was showing up again. When the temple was first built by Solomon, God filled it with his glory and he said to them, if you, fo- if you don't follow my ways, I'm leaving. Sure enough, in Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11, Ezekiel has a vision of what they were up to in the temple and he's horrified by the idolatry that they were indulging in in this temple and he sees the glory of God leaving the temple and leaving the city. And here, Ezekiel sees this vision of a new temple and the glory of God filling the temple again. God can't stay away from his people for long. Now, if you know your biblical history, you'll know that when some of the Jews returned from the exile, they built a new temple, but it was a bit of a disappointment. It wasn't what's promised here in Ezekiel. It was not even close to what Ezekiel's promising here or what God's promising to Ezekiel. But in the New Testament, it tells us that we've seen the fulfillment of this promise in Jesus Christ. There's a very significant verse in John chapter 1, which you often hear around Christmas time, which says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God has again made His dwelling among us. But it's not in a building or in a tent or in a special place. His dwelling among us is in a person, a person who is full of his glory. So as Jesus himself said in John chapter 2, he is the new temple. He is now the meeting place between heaven and earth. It's not a building you go to, it's a person, Jesus Christ. And everyone who's joined to Jesus has the presence of God because Jesus gives his people the spirit of God who indwells each of God's people. In John 14, Jesus promises to those who love and obey him that he will send them the Holy Spirit, and he says, we will come to them and make our home with them. That is, God himself, the triune God, will come to uh, Christians and make his home with them. So living in each Christian, there is the Spirit in whom is the presence of God the Son and God the Father. And that's why a Christian's body can be referred to as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church, that is the body of believers, not a building, but but a group of people, is often referred to in the New Testament as God's temple, uh, where God lives on earth, which is, he, he is still constructing. We are God's temple, collectively. And the bottom line here is that the same God who arrived in Ezekiel's vision with the force of an atomic bomb is now present in each one of us by His Spirit through His Son. And that is an absolutely incredible and profound thought, and not just a theological theory, but a spiritual reality. What does that feel like? Uh, Well, in the Old Testament, they they weren't awestruck and falling on their faces all the time, even though um, God was in their midst. Most days were just ordinary days. 
Neither can we expect to be blown away by the presence of God every day, even though we have God living in us. Maybe we don't feel much. Uh, We walk by faith, not by sight. Maybe sometimes we do feel. Uh, But you need to remember, whether you feel much or not, that it's not a small thing for God to be with you, Uh, nor is is it a weak, ineffectual thing. Um, It's a powerful thing, and it's certainly not something for you to ignore if the Bible tells you that God is with you. The same God whom Ezekiel saw is in us and is present with us as his people. So what does it require to keep company with God? Uh, That's what verses 6 to 12 are about, what God's company requires. God now speaks to Ezekiel from within the temple and he gives him two messages to prepare Israel for his return. They need to be responsive in repentance and humble in hope. So firstly, verses 6 to 9, notice the phrase in verse 7 and in verse 9, I will live among them forever. And in between the repetition of that that phrase in verse 7 and verse 9, is the ways that Israel are to respond to that awesome fact that I will live among them forever. And God mentions three things for Israel to turn away from here, all of them related to the temple. The first is prostitution, which probably means spiritual prostitution and worshipping idols in the temple, as they had been doing. The second is setting up monuments to their dead kings in the temple, which could only distract people from honouring God. And the third is that the king's palace had been set up right next to the temple in the same compound, so that God and the king were side by side, which is not how it should be. And all of those things undermined God's kingship amongst his people. God says, get rid of all of those things. If God's going to live amongst his people, there cannot be any rivals for him as the king, as the boss. And that, of course, applies to us as well. And so you might like to think, what are the rivals that undermine God's rule over you? God might be dwelling in you, if you're a Christian, as the New Testament says he is. But what idols have you set up in your heart alongside God? Um, We may want the full uh, blessing of God's presence with us to, to see more of God, to feel more of God. But we can't experience that if we are worshipping other things at the same time. God must have no rivals in our hearts. Many of us uh, would probably agree what our priorities should be. Number one, my priority should be God. Number two, family, perhaps. Number three, friends. Four, health. Five, work. Six, leisure and comfort. Seven, wealth. Whatever. You might reorder the, the lower ones. But we'd probably all agree that God comes first, family comes second. But are we really putting God first in the decisions that we make in our life with our time, our money, our energy, our relationships, the way we conduct ourselves. Perhaps there are more idols and monuments in our hearts than we would like to admit, and we really do need to think about what we need to turn away from, because God is with us. The encouraging thing here is that God promises in verse 7 that the people of Israel will never again defile my holy name. And do you remember in chapter 36, he promised his people a new heart and a new spirit, So if you're in Christ and you ask, he will work in you to change you. He will help you to repent. He's not going to leave his temple again. He's going to make it so that he can stay. And that means he will transform us 
if we are the place where he dwells. But we need to cooperate with that and be responsive in repentance. Chase out all the rivals from our hearts to God. The second thing to prepare for God's company is to be humble in hope in verses 10 to 12. Um, In the previous three chapters, chapters 40 to 42, God's given Ezekiel a blueprint for the new temple. uh, And it's a symbolic design. It's not actually the design that they built when they returned. But it symbolises the holiness of God and how he would protect his holiness when he returned to his people. And following this chapter, there are regulations for what's to happen within that temple, again, to protect his holiness. The point is that God has made very detailed plans for a future with his people. He knows exactly what he's doing and what he's preparing. For the Jews in exile in Babylon, there would be two effects. First, they would be... they were to be humbled by these plans or ashamed of their sins. See in verse 10, it says, Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection, that is, its planning. They would be ashamed because God is rebuilding what they had ruined and the new temple would guard his holiness better than the old against their sin. And secondly, this would give them hope that God has a plan and it will be perfect one day the next time around. Not just a vague sentiment, yeah, one day I'll live with you, but no, here is a plan, I've thought this through. Uh, We are actually, as Christians, given a very similar encouragement in Revelation. If you were to read these chapters in Ezekiel, they might remind you of the final chapters in Revelation because in Revelation 21, John is shown the measurements of the New Jerusalem. He meets an angel and the angel has a measuring rod and he measures out the new city of God, uh, which is complete and perfect and wonderful and massive and beautiful. Um, It's a description of the perfected people of God, old and new covenant, Uh, among whom he will live forever. And it's encouraging to know that God's not just making it up as he goes along, he has a plan. He's measured it out in his mind and he says, this is what I'm going to build. He's seriously committed. And that's very encouraging because it's not just a vague sentiment that God has, but he knows exactly what he is doing and he's going to do it. And so we should be humbled in hope that God will not fail to bring about what he is intending to do. Uh, We should be humbled in a God-given vision of an eternal future in which God lives with us forever. And he is going to do whatever it takes to make it happen, which includes getting us there. And that's a very wonderful thought. It's not up to me, it's up to God and what he is building, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, We went on a little holiday um, several years ago now. We drove a camper van from Alice Springs up to Darwin. It was great fun. There's a whole lot of nothing, but sort of interesting nothing in between, like right up the centre of Australia. And right in the middle, uh, we spent the night at a place called Wycliffe Well, which is the... um, Apparently, there was an alien sighting there uh, once. And uh, so it's the alien capital of Australia. But there's nothing there except a roadhouse. And somebody sunk a whole lot of money into it and built this sort of amusement park there. There's big fiberglass aliens and a little train that's broken down but it used to run around this little lake and you know swimming pool and whatever else and you could tell that one day at at some stage somebody had tried to build something very impressive there and was hoping that people would just flock to this place which is literally in the middle of nowhere and sure enough there was us and there was another family who arrived later and for some reason, even though the camping area was the size of about 10 football fields, they parked right next to us. But anyway, there was us and this other mob who were there 
and we just wandered around this place and it was us and frogs and this other family and that was all that was there. So somebody had built this place and failed to populate it completely. I've just got your attention back, but the point is that <laughs> God is building something which will be full of his people and he has a plan for that and he's able to carry it out and the wonderful encouraging thing for you and me is that if we're in Christ, we have a place with him in this new Jerusalem that he is building. God sets himself up amongst his people. That is the core of his plan for our blessing and for his glory. If you're a Christian, you need to consider what a profound thing it is to have met God in his son and for God to be dwelling in you by his spirit. And that should really change you that God is with you, in fact, in you. And beyond this life, we have the promise of the never-ending experience of the presence of God when he makes his home among us in a much fuller way than we are experiencing right now. Uh, we'll be face to face. Does God want to be in our company? Yes, he does. Incredibly, he does want to be in our company. And he's made that possible by provi providing the atonement of our sins through his son. He doesn't want to be in our company because he's lonely or needy. He doesn't want to be in our company because we are irresistible and who wouldn't want to be in our company. In fact, it's incredible that God even notices us and bothers with us, but it's because his presence is our greatest blessing and we are the place where God establishes his glory by demonstrating the riches of his grace. And that's why he is making his home among us. The challenge for us in this, I think, is whether we want to be in God's company uh, God says, I will live with you forever. And some say, well, actually, could you just kind of visit regularly instead? Uh, God says, I will make my home with you. And some say, well, actually, could you make your home just around the corner so that you're close but not too close? Repentance is exhausting and humbling. And perhaps we would prefer just occasional small doses of God. But let's remember that what we're talking about is the creator of the universe who is far greater and holier and more glorious than any human being, even a member of the royal family, making his home amongst people on earth. He's given his son to make it possible. He gives his spirit to make it work. There is no greater privilege or blessing than to be amongst the people of God and to have the very presence of God himself with you. To be with the Lord forever is the essence of heaven and eternal life. And it is to the praise of his glorious grace, which is the reason that all of us exist. So it's a very wonderful thing that God is with us and uh, we should pray that he helps us to appreciate that and uh, to welcome his company. So let's pray that he helps us. <clears throat> Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for this gracious plan to make your home amongst your people. We thank you for Jesus who has made it possible. We thank you for your Holy Spirit in whom you've come and made your home amongst us. Father, we pray that you would help us to be responsive and welcoming and receptive to you, not pushing you away, not keeping you at a distance, but wanting more of you. And so help us, Lord, to tolerate no rivals in our hearts but to repent and to welcome you um, 
and to experience you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.